Here's why we're here this morning. So it says this in Matthew 28. This is why we're here. The angel said to the woman, Do not be afraid, for I know that you are looking for Jesus who was crucified. He was. He is not here. He has risen just as he said. So one more time, let's do this. Christ is risen. Beautiful. That's what we're here for. Uh, Following Jesus. It's all based on this. You know, the thing is that believing in the resurrection requires you to believe in in an incredible miracle. And some people have trouble with that. I get that. But if you can be open to the possibility that it's true, that this story is true, Jesus rose on the third day, the story gives you all the reasons in the world to believe that, in fact, it is true. It is one of the best attested facts of history. I mean, usually in history, we have to go by single sources, more often than not by single sources, often written centuries after the event. Like, for example, most of what we know about Alexander the Great comes from one source. It's a historian named Livy, who was writing about four centuries after Alexander the Great lived. That's not untypical for, for history. Well, when it comes to Jesus, and now particularly his resurrection, we've got the four Gospels all written, written within one generation of the event. And those four Gospels, if you subject them to all the standard sort of tests that historians subject ancient documents to, to verify how reliable they are, they pass those tests with flying colors. So we've got four very early sources. We know that they're not just copying one another because their accounts are all somewhat different. Uh, they're, they're not all completely harmonious. And then we've got the Apostle Paul. He experiences the risen Lord. And he, he, he uh, reports about for a dozen other names, a dozen other people who witnessed the resurrected Christ. And then alludes to the 500 people, more than 500, who saw him at one time. As if to say, if you don't believe me, check out these, these other folks. This is very well attested in history. This is about as good as history ever gets. And then on top of that, there's this. This is one, I think, one of the strongest arguments for the resurrection. How do you explain how these monotheistic Jews... Raised in Judaism, and the fundamental tenet of their faith is that God is up in heaven, humans are down here, and never the two are the same. God is not a human. And yet we find that Jesus made such an impression on them that by the end of his ministry, when he ascends to heaven, they are seeing him as God on earth, the embodiment of Yahweh. One of their contemporaries is is Yahweh embodied. How do you explain how these Jews, against everything they were ever taught, the way they were raised, their culture, they are worshiping this human being. That's considered blasphemy in Judaism. They're worshiping and praying to this human being as though he's God. What did Jesus do to make that kind of impression on them? And how do you explain how this band of scared disciples, hiding out in the upper room for you know, fear of their life, all of a sudden, overnight, become this courageous band of preachers who go out into the Roman world, proclaiming that Jesus Christ is a resurrected Son of God? And they're willing to lay it down their life for it. In fact, they did lay down their lives for it. How do you explain that? What took place that explains this change, this transformation? Now, they say it's the resurrection. They say they believe in Jesus, in the Son of God, because of the resurrection and the miracles and other things that he did. But it's primarily the resurrection. If that is true, then everything's explained. If that is not true, then what is true that explains this? There's not any good alternatives. It's either true or it's false, and if it's false, it's either intentionally false, they're lying about it, or it's unintentionally false, they're believing a legend or something. But why would they lie about it? It sounds like they benefited from this. God, giant houses and Rolex watches and lived in giant mansions and whatever. No, they, they died for this. And there's not a record of any of them rescinding, and we would have that record if any of them had recanted their testimony. We would know about it. There's a lot of hostile witnesses that want to prove this thing wrong. So they can't be lying. 
So then the only other alternative is that they're sincere, but they're believing a lie. They're believing a legend or something. The trouble is that this isn't a story that's told long, long, long ago and far, far away about somewhere in another Netherland. No, this is a story about a very public figure, a contemporary of theirs they hung out with for three years. His brother is among the, the group of believers. How do you develop a legend about a guy becoming God when his brother's still there? Uh, and it's a public figure. These, these, they're preaching in the same vicinity that Jesus did his ministry. They don't have to prove that he exists. Everyone knows that. In fact, there's no record of the opponents even denying that Jesus did the miracles that he did. What they deny is that he did it by the power of God. And so it seems to me that we've got every reason in the world to believe that this is actually rooted in, in, in actual history. And to me, this is the greatest proof that Jesus Christ is, in fact, who the New Testament says he is. He is the Lord of lords, the King of kings, the Son of God, the Word of God, the Savior of the world, uh, the Creator God Almighty. Amen. Amen. And he's risen from the dead to bring us newness of life. And that means that the resurrection is the greatest proof that the surest way to know that you will be resurrected and enter into an eternal relationship with God is to put your trust in Jesus. And so if you're here this morning and are not a committed follower of Jesus, you haven't made a decision about this, I want to encourage you to chew on that really hard, all right? What is your explanation? Who do you say that Jesus is? It's the most important question in the world. And uh, I encourage you before this service is done, just surrender your heart to, to him. And if you do that, after the service, come up here and tell the folks what, what went on in your life, and uh, they'll help you start to get walking in this kingdom way. Because it's not a magical thing where you, because you believe something, all of a sudden everything's wonderful. No, it's about cultivating a relationship with him. The belief has to be there, but it goes beyond that. You'll find that when you surrender to Christ, it starts with being a theory. I can't explain this any other way. That's a theory, but it becomes a lived reality because this is not about the past. It's about the present. He is here. He is now. He is real. He is true. He is Jesus. And you begin to find that in your life. Amen. Now, here's the thing. The resurrection is primarily about uh, Jesus rising from the dead, and that gives us the assurance that we will rise at the end of the age and live forever with him. But the resurrection is about a lot more than that. It's about here. It's about now. It's about our life here and now. It's really a principle of life. Um, and this is what I want to talk about here this morning. I'm going to call this the resurrection principle. It is a central aspect of our walk with God, though I don't think we talk about it too much. Now, I don't know if you're aware of this or not, but um, the meaning of the resurrection changed. It got altered quite significantly in the course of time throughout history, beginning with about the 4th century. The common assumption of many people today, and it's been more or less an assumption that many have had throughout church history, is that since Jesus suffered and died and rose again, we don't have to suffer. We, we share in his victory, but we don't have to share in his suffering. He's taking care of all the suffering for us. And it's true he's taking care of all the suffering for sin for us, but that's different than saying he's taking care of all the suffering for us. The idea has been that, that now we just live, are, are to live a resurrected life, which means we're to be free of suffering, free of trials, always perpetually happy, euphoric. And there's a lot of net negative implications of this perspective on the, on the resurrection. For one thing, if you think that following Jesus gives you some kind of insurance policy against the problems of life, then when the problems of life hit, when the tragedy strikes, when the affliction hits, uh, well, then, then you're mad at God. I've known people who walk away from God because they said, I'm, I, I was believing in him, and yet my child died or, or, or some other tragedy happened. And their assumption was that somehow they thought they had this, this protection policy that insulated them from the trials of the world, the afflictions of the world. And I don't mean to burst your bubble, but it's going to be burst sooner or later, so you might as well let me do it. But the world doesn't work like that. The world just doesn't work like that. It, it, you can prove this looking at statistics. Tragedies happen to Christians as much as to non-Christians. It, it just, 
We live in a war zone and we take hits. And whether you're a follower or not, you're going to take different kinds of hits, but you take hits. That's why the folks who, they just look silly when they say, oh, that hurricane happened because God was judging those sinners down there, or their earthquake or whatever. You. you know, that mindset will come back to bite you when it's your kid who dies or when a hurricane you know, blows over your house. Eventually, it's going to hit, and, uh, and it comes back to bite you. No, it's, there's, it's not about that. It's not about God getting even with anybody. He doesn't do that. It's about we live in this corrupted war zone, and, and tough stuff happens to everybody. See, but this, this idea of the resurrection is, is, is what gives some Christians this idea that that a true follower of Jesus would always be living in victory, always be living in absolute happiness and joy, always be living, having your act together. That's why you go to the bookstores and half the bookstore, Christian bookstores, packed out with books on victorious living, more than a conqueror, get your best life now. The other half is four blood moons in the rapture. You know, it's just, what you don't get is any good theology, but, but I'm not bitter. No, so it just sets you up to this idea that, hey, look at man, if you're following Jesus, then, then no matter what happens, you're just going to have nothing but happiness in your life. I mean, fatal, a terminal cancer can strike you the day after your beloved dog got hit by a car, which was the same day you got fired from your job, which is when your wife had a nervous breakdown and got sent to the psych ward, which is going to drive you bankrupt because your insurance just got canceled because it was associated with your job. And yet you can be so happy and just smiling all the time. And folks, it just doesn't quite work like that. It's true that we've got a follower of Jesus. He gives us life. Genuine life, abundant life. And that's, that, 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 that's a fullness of significance and worth and purpose and meaning. And so there can be, in the, in the depth of your soul, this joy. You, you see the big picture. You know that all the trials of this present age are just a nanosecond compared to the reality of our eternal life with God. That puts things in perspective. But it doesn't mean you're always happy. It doesn't mean that you're not going to suffer. It doesn't mean you're not going to have pain. It doesn't mean you're not going to cry. No, in, in this war zone world, there are, there's going to be trials. And um, we have to just be expecting that. In fact, the saddest thing is that a lot of churches sell Jesus this way. They think it's their job to sell Jesus. Give it a nice spin. It's a consumer market, you know, you've got to put the best spin on it. So, hey, follow Jesus and you'll be happy, happy, happy like us. And you won't go to hell. What do you say? For sinners, prayer, it's yours. Uh, and, and in this consumer culture, you know, they can get some mileage, some traction, though I think fewer and fewer people are actually buying that. You know, what, what's interesting is that the early church never thought this way. The church of the first three centuries, it never occurred to them to think that they were going to be happy. Uh, it, it never occurred to them to expect that they weren't going to suffer, probably because it was so obvious. I mean, the first three centuries, Christians were persecuted in sometimes very, very vicious ways, fed to lions, set on fire, impaled on posts. It's kind of hard to be selling Jesus with a happy, happy, happy when you're watching your kids get fed the lions. It just doesn't work very well. No one's going to believe you. It was only in the 4th century, early 4th century, that people began to get this idea that because Jesus suffered, we should always be happy and never have to suffer. What happened was the Emperor Constantine allegedly converted to Christianity and then threw all this political power at it and all this money at it and all the social status at it. And within 50 years, the church became the church militant and triumphant. It used to be this little humble band of folks who just loved to serve the world and, and got martyred for it. Now it's, it's the conquering church, the victorious church. And, and, and so they got this idea that the church looks like we thought we were going to have to suffer until Jesus came back, but I guess that was just a provisional thing. Now we get to win and win by the world standards. We get to overcome. The church became one of the, the most powerful institution in Rome after Rome fell. Um, and so we get to win. That means we get to have our way. Instead of being persecuted, that we get to do the persecuting. How's that lovely? And since the church is victorious, Christians have this idea that they're supposed to be victorious. You know, all the bad stuff is behind us. Because Jesus has died, we don't have to have any problems. 
And so today, there's many people who have this view of the resurrection, and they expect that following Jesus is going to make them always happy and victorious. They live with resurrection power. And if you're in a church like that, well, you'll feel pressure to be living in quote-unquote resurrection power. You'll feel pressure, social pressure, to be putting on the smile, uh, to be happy and chipper. Uh, you know, because, because if you're not happy and chipper, well, then what is wrong with you? Maybe you don't really believe in the resurrection power. Uh, there's something off with you. People who are really into reality don't fare very well in these sort of social environments. These churches that, that look like little glee clubs. Everyone's happy. No one has any problems. Everyone's always smiling. Up, up, chipper, 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 yay, yay, yay. And uh, no, nothing ever gets dealt with. And the thing is that some of those glee club churches are the sickest places on the planet. Because everyone's smiling. Whenever you see everyone smiling, be suspicious. <laughs> that just isn't real. There's something wrong with that. Um, and see, what happens is if you're trying, this is what, if you feel the pressure to be happy, well, then you try to be happy, you try to be positive, you try just to be always on the up and up, and so, so you don't notice. You'll try not to notice all the defeated aspects of your life. You're too busy trying to be victorious or noticing all the sad aspects of your life. You're too try, busy trying to be happy. And this is really the most unfortunate aspect of this view of the resurrection. It leads people to be dishonest with themselves. And what's particularly tragic is we have trouble being honest with ourselves anyway. This just reinforces this. It means we don't deal with reality. If your goal is always to be happy, you're not going to deal with the reality that there's a, a, a despair that's coming on. If your goal is to be victorious, you're not going to be honest about the defeats in your life. You'll avoid it. It gives a, a pain avoidance strategy to people. It rewards people for avoiding pain. Scott Peck defines neurosis that way. A neurosis is an unwillingness to face the painful reality because it's painful, and choosing instead to live in an alternative, your own alternative reality, which is an unreality. That is neurosis. And so this happy, happy, happy religion causes people to become neurotic. They don't deal with reality. The only healthy way to deal with painful realities is not to try to go around them. If you try to go around them, all they do is fester and get bigger and bigger, and you end up, you end up paying more for them. There, there's more pain by trying to avoid pain than by going through pain. So the only healthy way to deal with pain is to go through it, not around it. And see, here's the good news of the resurrection. The good news of the resurrection isn't that we get to avoid suffering, because we don't get to avoid it. In fact, the New Testament tells us to expect suffering. In fact, the New Testament tells us that we're supposed to suffer. I know this isn't going to be any aisle-running yays right now on Easter morning, but we're told that we're supposed to suffer. Paul says, if we share in his sufferings, then we will share in his victory. The good news is that we will share in his victory. The good news, and this is the immediate application of the resurrection principle of our life here and now, is that the New Testament promises us that if we are willing to embrace the painful, ugly, nasty realities of our life, and we're willing to face them, and willing to surrender them over to God, there is a resurrection on the other side of that. The resurrection isn't just about our ultimate resurrection at the end of the age. God, even now in our life, wants to resurrect new things by taking the crap of our life and using it as fertilizer, if we'll let him, and birthing some wonderful kingdom fruit, resurrecting new parts of us, new kingdom aspects of us, through the garbage of our life. But it only happens if we're honest about the garbage, and we're surrendering the garbage over to him. This is what Paul says. And it touched, it's, it's an expression of the resurrection principle. He says, we know that in everything, in everything, God works for the good with those who love him and are called according to his purpose. Praise God. Now, look at it. In everything, God is working with those who love him for the good. In everything. It doesn't mean that God's working everything. He's working in everything. 
It doesn't mean that God's causing everything for the good. No, he finds everything as it is. And much of it is really yucky. But God is working in everything to bring about the good. Uh, you know, if a fireman who goes into a burning house to save somebody is going into the fiery, fiery furnace for the, for the good, for the purpose of the good, trying to save somebody. But it doesn't mean that the fireman caused the fire. No, he came upon the fire, and now he's in it to do something good. So also, God doesn't cause the crap of your life. No, life does that. You do that. Others do that. But God doesn't do that. The devil does that. Demons do that. But God doesn't do that. But he finds the everything in your life with all of its sinful, demonic stuff. And then he works in it, if we'll let him, for the good. But we've got to let him. That's why, that's why Paul restricts us to those who, are, who love God and are called according to his purpose. God's not up to playing favorites, saying, oh, I'll work good in this person's life, but I'm not going to work good in that person's life. Because he loves everybody. But see, it's only those who know him and love him and know his purposes, who know that he wants to work in everything for the good, and so we let him work in everything for the good. People who don't know that, don't let him. And so we're called here to be a people who take all of our stuff, give our everything to God. Everything includes the good, the bad, the very, very ugly. Even the the nasty, ugly, smelly, slimy, sin-stained, corrupted, carnal, degraded, debaucherous, perverted, polluted, painful, wounded stuff in our life. All of that, that's the everything we give to God. And the promise is he'll be working in that to bring about the good, to resurrect something new and beautiful. But it requires that we face it and we're honest with it and that we surrender it. Here again, Jesus is our main example. In the garden, Gethsemane, prior to his arrest, he's praying alone, of course, because the disciples fell asleep. And he's facing the reality of what is going to happen to him. The horror that he is facing. It causes him to sweat drops of blood. And if we think for a moment about what, it was, what he was facing, we can understand why. I'm told that under extreme pressure, the blood corpuscles in your face can pop, and, and you actually do sweat blood. Um, it's not just the physical horror that he's facing, though that would freak any of us out. As he's contemplating getting whipped and flogged to the point where he's beyond recognition, his bones exposed with those spikes, and then having nine-inch nails driven into his hands and his wrists and, and, and having a spear in, into his side, a crowd of thorns, that would make probably anyone sweat drops of blood. It's a terrible, terrible way to die. And you finally are suffocated, slowly. Uh, you can't pull yourself up to get any more air. Uh, but far beyond that is the spiritual reality, and this is something I don't, I don't think we can even begin to grasp how horrific this is. Pain, pain, think about this. Pain, pain happens whenever something unnatural happens to you or in you. When something's unnatural, it causes pain. It's like a warning. Something's unnatural going on here. I have my little toe right now is throbbing in pain because last night I got, got, up, got up to go to the bathroom and I ran my toe into the corner of our bathroom. I think I might have broke it. It's just all smashed and uh, it, it's painful. The fact that I was just dancing on it so much didn't help. But the joy was more than the pain, so I went with it. Um, but... So it, it, that, that's what pain is. It's, it's what's unnatural. Like, like being buried alive would be very painful because it's very unnatural. You're supposed to be above ground with air. Instead, you're below ground without air, and that would be terrifying. So think about this. God is the opposite of evil and sin. Sin is against God's nature. And yet, God became a human being, and then, we're told, on the cross, he became our sin. God made him who knew no sin to be sin for us, Paul says, 2 Corinthians 5.21. He entered to the, on the inside of our sin. That's, uh, that, that's like us holding our breath. It's completely contrary to his nature. That would be the most intense kind of pain we can imagine. And it's the sin of the whole world throughout history, of everyone. All the sin of the world. 
So he's on the inside of the Hitlers and the Stalins, Mussolinis and the jaded folks and torturing folks and all of that. The worst people that have ever existed, he's on the inside of that sin. The all-holy God is experiencing this from the inside. It'd be, that would be unimaginable. That, that's as extreme against God's nature as you can possibly get. The pain would be unthinkable. Except there's one thing that's even worse. And that is that as he stands in our place as a condemned sinner, he experiences separation from the Father. That's why he cries out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? He, 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 bears, he bears the consequences of sin that we deserve, which is separation from the Father. So the Son's very nature is to be one with the Father, for, to, to be absolute one in perfect love with the Father. And now for this moment, there is there's separation, the most unnatural state the Son of God could, could have been in. And the Father, I think, was in extreme pain as well, as this is unnatural to the entire Godhead. But they're willing to do this out of love for humanity. For humanity. This would be the most intense pain in, 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 in possible in, in the whole universe throughout history. You couldn't get a more intense kind of pain than this because you couldn't get a more extremely unnatural situation for the supremely loving, holy, united God to take on our sin and to bear our separation from God. And that's why the cross is the supreme revelation of who God is. It reveals the infinite intensity of his love because it, it was the infinite distance he crossed and what he was willing to suffer on our behalf. And so Jesus in the garden is thinking about this. And it had to be, we, we couldn't have words for what he was facing. It's no wonder that he sweat drops of blood. It's also no wonder that he, in the last minute, explored the possibility of another way. So he says, Father, if it's possible, may this cup be taken from me. Yet, not as I will, but as you will. Dad, is there any, any other way we can do this? I'm on board. I want to, I, I want to do this, but is there a way that we can defeat the devil and defeat sin and, and, and the grave and, and reconcile humanity back to you without me drinking from this cup? The cup is, is, is a cup of suffering. It's used that way throughout the Old Testament. And to drink from it means that you're embracing the suffering. Do I have to, Dad? He says, I'm here looking into this. It's unthinkable. It's unthinkable. And there are times when prayer can motivate God to change a course and go in a different direction. You find that going on throughout the whole biblical narrative. But in this case, it was not possible. If the devil was going to be defeated, if, if sin was going to be overcome, if the grave was going to be overcome, if human beings were going to be reconciled back with God, if the true picture of God was going to be displayed in the face of all the lies that we've ever believed, this had to happen. And so he says, not my will, but yours be done. And so... He's called to look, look into the face of this unthinkable, ugly, painful thing. And now trust that as he goes through it, the Father will be at work and the Father will vindicate him and the Father will resurrect him on the other side into newness of life. But he only can get to the resurrection by going through the nightmarish, ugly stuff. You've got to go through Good Friday if you're going to get to Easter. And that's true, what, what Jesus did for the whole cosmos on, on, uh, 2,000 years ago. But it's also true of every Good Friday aspect of our life. We are called to look at every aspect of our life that is Calvary-like, that, that, that is, 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 is of the devil, that is of sin, that is not of life, it's of death. Everything that's destructive, everything that's beneath what we're called to live in. We're called to look at the nasty, ugly, smelly, slimy, sin-stained, corrupted, carnal, polluted, perverted, degraded, debaucherous, wounding stuff and to, and to embrace it and to say, God, may this be your fertilizer, and grow something beautiful out of this as I go through this. We're called to go through our Good Fridays in order to get to the Easter's. The good news is that there is the Easter. 
Were there no God, were there no resurrection, it would just be suffering for no point. But no, God is now using the everything, however it got there, the cup of suffering, however it got there. He didn't give it to you, but, but, it, but life, life does, or we bring it on ourselves. But now that it's there, we're called to, like Jesus, boldly face it. Look into it, stare into it. Offer it up to him and trust that he'll be working in it to burst something beautiful out of it. We'll go through the suffering, but it'll be more than worth it when we come out on the other end. As something new and beautiful will be resurrected in our life. You know, you see this happening in, uh, in, 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 with, with, with Peter. I shared, talked about Peter on, on Friday night, and we had the most blessed Good Friday service. It was just glorious. God showed up. But see, with, with Peter, you know, he had this, this false view of the Messiah and a false view of himself. He thought the Messiah, and this was a pretty common Jewish view in the, in the first century, he thought the Messiah was going to come and with his, use miracle-working power to crush the Romans and to liberate Israel to be a sovereign nation once again. So he wanted a, a Messiah in his own image, who did what he wanted the Messiah to do. Uh, and he wanted the Messiah to be victorious by the world's standards. And he wanted to be the, the victorious Messiah's right-hand man. So he's always positioning himself to be kind of like the hero right next to Jesus. And that's why Peter would always object whenever Jesus would start to talk about suffering. i got to go to Jerusalem and die. Give my life for ransom for many. Peter would have nothing to do with it. He just plug his ears and go, la, 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 la. That's why even after the, the, the cross, none of them were expecting the resurrection because they weren't listening to him. It went in one ear out the other. It just didn't fit their categories. And sometimes Peter got big in, in the face of Jesus saying, we're not going to let that happen to you. And Jesus said, get behind me, Satan. This is where I'm going. Get on board or, or else. Um, so he, he just didn't fit his concept of what a Messiah was supposed to be. Now, God knew that Peter, if Peter was ever going to become a Christ-like servant in the kingdom, that old view of the Messiah and that view of himself had to be smashed. The old Peter had to die, but the new Peter, the kingdom Peter, the Christ-like Peter, was going to be resurrected. And see, God, who knows everything, knew Peter's true character. Peter always looks brave. He always acts first, always speaks first, pulls out the sword. Yeah, he looks really tough. But what God knows is that the only reason he is confident like that is because he thinks he's standing next to the victorious, militant, Roman butt-kicking Messiah. Oh, yeah, big dad, big bad dad's in town. I'll hold his hand, and I'll act really tough. But what God knows is that the minute Jesus gets arrested and Peter's uh, false view of the Messiah comes crashing to the ground, that this guy's going to turn into a total coward. He's, he's about saving himself. He had a Messiah after his own image, and once that goes, well, he's going to save himself. And so, as a way, God's working in everything, even in the sin, to bring good out of it. And so God sees a way of bringing good out of this. And so he, he reveals to Jesus, the Father reveals to Jesus at the Last Supper, the truth about Peter. And Jesus says, Peter, before night falls, you're out here bragging about how you're going to just defend me. Well, you know what? You're going to deny me three times before morning, before the cock crows. And then Peter, as the night proceeds, he ends up doing exactly that. As his hopes and dreams come falling to the ground when Jesus gets arrested, he was sure that Jesus would start using his miracle power when he pulled out a sword. Instead, Jesus rebuked him once again. Uh, now that that's gone, Peter denies him three times. And the last time he denies him, he catches the eye of Jesus, it says in one gospel, just as the cock crows, and he remembers the prophecy. And it says, when he remembered the prophecy, he wailed. He wailed. Because now, see, that prophecy was given to break him. And he was broken as he had to look into a mirror. The mirror of who he really was. The mirror of how wrong he was about what it means to be a Messiah or a follower of the Messiah. And so here he has to stare into the ugly reality. of the co- He just betrayed the man he had pledged his life to, the man he loves most in this world, the man he had, he had promised to die for. He just 
denied he even knew him three times on an oath. And he looks into that ugly reality and he wails. But see, it was looking into that ugly reality, looking into his Good Friday, that transformed him. It was the beginning of this transformation. As God continued to work into Peter, we find a very different Peter after the resurrection than was there before the resurrection. And so as I said on, on, on the Good Friday service, Jesus shows up in John 20, 21, and says three, three times, not a coincidence here, three times, do you love me, Peter? Do you love me? And, and Peter each time says, yes, Lord, I do. And he says, feed my sheep. And he's just locking in the love that, the genuine love that Peter has now, replacing it, uh, using it to replace the three, the three denials that he had earlier. You used to deny me, but now, now you understand the nature of what it means to be a Messiah and a follower of the Messiah. It's not about conquering the way the world conquers. It's about serving the way I serve on the cross. And, and Peter is now getting it. And then he gives another prophecy right after that. Whereas the prophecy of the old Peter was that, that he would deny him. The new prophecy is that Peter will re- now remain faithful even to the point of death. Peter now gets it. And then if you read Peter's first epistle, you'll see a very different man. He's a broken man. He's not the cocky guy you see in the Gospels. No, he, he understands, he has suffered, and he understands suffering, and he embraces it now. You find it throughout his first epistle. Here's one example. He says, if you suffer for doing good and you endure it, this is commendable before God. Don't run from that. That's a good thing. To this you were called, because Christ suffered for you. Instead of saying Christ suffered for us, therefore we don't have to suffer, Peter says, Christ suffered for you, therefore you have to suffer. He says the exact opposite. The meaning of the resurrection is not that you get to be free of it. It's the exact opposite. It's that if we go through it, we'll come out resurrected selves. To this you were called because Christ suffered for you, leaving you an example that you should follow in his steps. We are not called to run from suffering the way Peter did, with his avoidance strategy, with his false view of the Messiah, or the way Peter did when he denied Christ. We're called, rather, to follow Jesus' example and be willing to suffer, uh, to embrace it, and to trust that as we do it, as we stare into the scary, ugly, nasty, sin-stained, smelly, putrid, debaucherous, perverted, polluted stuff, that God will be at work to burst something beautiful out of it. If we're willing to look at it, embrace it, and go through it. I've shared this example before, but it's, it's, uh, if you've been here for a while, you may have, have, have heard this. But uh, it just, it's the moment that I first began to learn about this resurrection principle and what can be birthed through suffering. Um, and it concerns Shelly and I. I've shared some of this before, but you know, when we first got married, uh, we within one week left all of our family and friends. We're all on our own as we go out east. Uh, as I'm going to be attending Yale, and and it was a very hostile environment for Shelley. It was it was an academic environment, and she's not an academic kind of person, and so it, it, she felt out of place there. And some early things happened in our marriage where if I felt like uh, she was intimidated when I would try to talk about what I'm learning and stuff, that you know, she would have trouble understanding some of it. And, and it seemed like it some, sometimes it would send her in a spiral. Like she'd get depressed over it. And being a kid, meaning the best, but not knowing very much, I, checked, I decided to check that out of the marriage. I, I wouldn't bring any of that into the marriage. I thought I was doing the right thing. It was a dumb, dumb, dumb thing. Because see, to check that out of the marriage is to check a major part of who I am out of the marriage. Because this is the world I live in. I'm always thinking this stuff. It's kind of obsessive. Uh, and to check that out of the marriage is to leave kind of a shell behind. There's other things that, that, that went on that kind of set us kind of at odds. And then, and then there, there was the fact that Shelly just loves to make things beautiful. She loves to decorate. She, she's very environmentally sensitive. She's affected by the environment. So she, she wants it to be clean and na- nice and tidy. And she's always looking to prove it and making a house a home and making a living space and caring for people and making things beautiful. That's just what she does. 
I am the most environmentally challenged person on the planet. I, 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 don't, I don't notice anything. I, 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 I bump, I'll bump into a new chandelier three times before I even will notice that we have a chandelier, and I'll think it, I won't think it's new. I, I, I couldn't tell you the, the color of my, my bedroom off the top of my head. I just, it, it, my, my brain's too full of this theology stuff to even notice any of the environment stuff. I could be living in a pigsty, it wouldn't matter to me. It wouldn't affect me in the least. I'm affected by how consistent ideas are in my head, nothing in my environment. <laughs> So we're kind of different on this score. You get the point? So the center of who she is, here's the thing. So the center of who she is, I'm not getting. The center of who I am, she's not getting. And that's not good. And, and, and as life goes on, if you're a centimeter facing away from each other down here at the early part of your marriage, well, as time goes on, you get farther and farther and farther apart. And you don't even notice it. And you've got kids in, kids in common, and that occupies a lot of time. And you've got church in common, that occupies a lot of time. So there's a lot of distractions. You don't have to address this stuff. But at some level, we were both feeling this. Once in a while, we didn't kind of talk about it, but, but we'd never dive into it. we just sort of dance around it. And as the kids began to get older, I think we both sensed the vacuum more intensely and the loneliness more intensely. And we were developing resentment more and more intensely. And there came a point where I think we, 16 years into our marriage, we, 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 you know, on the outside, we had a good marriage. We didn't fight very much. But see, our souls weren't intersecting. The, uh, the inside of the inner core of who we are, we, we had grown alien to each other, absolutely alien to each other, not even that interested in the core of the other person. So there came a point where you just had to notice the ugly, smelly, slimy, sin-stained elephant in the middle of the room and name it and call it. And that was tremendously scary. That was looking down into the abyss. When we got honest with each other, it was very ugly and scary. It was like we were on two opposite sides of the Grand Canyon. <laughs> and without any idea how to cross over to the other side. And not even sure we wanted to. I don't know if I want to get into decorating. You know, it's, what do you do? <laughs> it, it was, it was tremendously scary. And we had made a promise to God and a promise to each other that we weren't going to get a divorce. This was for life. And there were times where that was shaky. I'm not going to make it sound like we were just all perfect, wonderful Christians. Try to think of ways around it. But we thought we owe it to each other and to God to work, try to make it work, though it felt hopeless. It was so hopeless, the first counselor we went to, I'm not kidding, went to this counselor saying we need help, and we laid out the whole ugly story before her, and by the end of the first session, she said, I don't think you have anything to work with. I would encourage you to look at amicable ways of ending this relationship. It's like, lady, thanks a lot. That's what we're trying to fight. Get behind me, Satan. I mean, you're supposed to... We came here so that you'd help us fix this thing. Well, we finally found a good counselor and, and worked through some stuff. And it was about six months of hell. It was really, really, really hard. And, and all the hurts and the wounds and misunderstandings had to come out. And it was really an ugly time. But see... What we found was this. I mean, one thing, if two people, I don't care how alien you are to each other, and Shelly and I are about as opposite in terms of how we think and are wired as any two people could be, but if you're both committed to finding a way, well, that itself gives you something in common. Like, we are bound in the same hellhole together. <laughs> We're in this together. You know, I'm miserable, you're miserable. Oh, I got a friend. And, and, and <laughs> I, I, we need each other to figure this out. 
you know, it's in, in both of our interests, it's like mutually self assured, uh, assured destruction. You know, it's like we both need each other if we ever have, are going to be happy. And so we're, we're motivated. That, that, that commitment gives you a bond. And then when people start trying, they're trying to get on the inside of you, the very effort begins to make you love them. Oh, look, she's trying, and I, he's trying. And so that begins to build up something. And when you explore different activities, try different things, to try to find things in common, try to get inside each other's weird world, and eventually you, you find ways of doing that. For me, the way that best worked was I started studying the philosophy of aesthetics which is the philosophy of beauty. She likes beauty, I like philosophy, so I'll study the philosophy of beauty. <laughs> it worked. And there's a whole field out there I didn't know about. What makes a, what, 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 what makes a living space? Uh, you know, uh, how does symmetry work? How does dissymmetry work? And, and uh, what makes something beauty? What is beauty? And I just began to read all these books on this. And it really changed things. It was, I it found a point of connection. Shelley used to drag me to these parade of homes, which I called the death march. Um, <laughs> Go, let's go look at bathrooms and sinks and cabinets and lamps and shades and rugs. and ah! I get so tired the minute I walk in the house. It's like, oh, I'm so tired. I just fatigue. I should get a Parade of Homes magazines to help my insomnia. That would, that would do the trick. No, it's just like, it really would be painful. Uh, but I felt like I needed to do it because that's what you know, a good husband should try. To, I'm trying to show interest here. But no, I, but I started studying these philosophy books on aesthetics. And I remember, I'm sure you remember, honey, the time we went into this house... Went into this uh, living space. Uh, she only had a friend with her. And I say, right out of the get-go, I go, this room just does not work. <laughs> now, immediately, you know, Shelly and her friend turn and stare at me like, the zombie said something. <laughs> he spoke. I go, I said, no, it just doesn't work. And so they say, well, why? And I say, well, because, you know, I'm conflicted. You come in here, you don't feel peaceful, you feel stressed because it, there's two competing centers here. I'm conflicted. Where am I supposed to, where are my eyes supposed to go? On the one hand, you got this very wonderful fireplace over here, which is really kind of organic to the room. But then you got the television set, which is an object place in the room. It's not even a natural part of the room. And it's competing with the fireplace. Get rid of the television set. It shouldn't be in here. And then you should adjust the, the, the floor of the room should be leading towards the fireplace. I would have put this couch over here, this chair over here. I laid on a nice rug leading into the fireplace. So that the fireplace welcomes your eyes, you see? And a nice, a nice warm kind of entry there. And the room had way too much symmetry. Everything is symmetrical. Boring, boring. That's not like life. Life's never symmetrical. So, I, you know, yeah, three, 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 all the same size. I'll get different size pictures. I'd only have two here, three here, and only one there, so it doesn't compete with the fireplace. Put them at different spots. Make a little bit of randomness. Introduce a little life in this room, and you'll have a living space. Thank you very much. <laughs> and it was... They're like... You know, what alien just took over Greg Boyd? <laughs> What's going on here? But see, I'll never forget the look in Shelly's eye when I was talking that way. Because she knew I was working to try to get on the inside of this. And it was like, her eyes were just saying, you're here. You're, you're, you're in my space. And you find ways to make a connection. For, for her, it was just a matter of asking what I'm thinking and then me trying to be honest about what I'm thinking. And, and whether it's intelligible or not, part of it was that I always, I always felt my inside was too weird for anyone to know, so I always hid it. And I was always hiding my weird behavior from my stepmother. And so I, I instinctively hid my weirdness, and, but that's part of who I am, so I would just have to tell her you know, what I'm doing with the molecules on the tree right now or whatever. Um, and, and it was just a way of, of you know, whether she understood or not, just getting the inside of me, and you find ways of coming together. We went through six months of hell, but I'm telling you, at the end of that, we went through a Good Friday marriage, but at the end of that, death march was, was, was resurrection. And I cannot believe what God resurrected. The beauty, of, I, there are times where I, I love her so much it hurts. 
You know, it, 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 I can't believe the depth of love we have. And the things that were different, you know, if, if you, you find ways where they, they stop conflicting with each other and, and they actually complement each other. And we make a great team because we're so different. And you work together. There's parts we're both missing. And, and so it builds a wholeness. There's a resurrected marriage. But to get there, you had to go through a good Friday. And so my question to us here this morning is this. In the resurrection, praise God, at the end of time, we're going to be resurrected into eternal life with God, and that's the best news in the universe. All the suffering of this present age is just a nanosecond compared to that. But even right here and now, God wants to be in the business of resurrection. But it requires that we're honest and face the Good Fridays in our life. So what is it in your life? Right now, just think about this. What is it in your life that is, is part of that ugly, nasty, smelly, slimy, degraded, debaucherous, sin-stained, corrupted, wounded stuff? What is in your life, what about your life is, is uh, are you dancing around? Is there anything that you're using a pain avoidance strategy on? Something that's just too ugly to, or too scary to look at? Maybe, maybe it's your, like, like with Shelly and I, maybe it's your marriage. Maybe you're settled. Maybe there's an elephant in the room that you're just not naming because it's too scary because if you start talking about that, you might get a divorce. And I, I want to just encourage you here, will you follow the example of Jesus? Don't settle. Follow the example of Jesus and stare at it. Look at it. Drink from the cup. Suffer whatever you need to suffer. Knowing that God will be in that, working everything for your good. Can you trust God enough to go through this? Maybe so far it's worked to be a stay distracted with the kids or the church or the busyness of life or to just put a smile over it. But now is the time to get real, to get honest, to plow through the Good Friday, to get to that Easter. God wants to resurrect something new. Or maybe it's some personal thing in your life. Maybe it's that, that addiction, or maybe it's, it's that anger problem you've got, or the persistent anxiety you have, or the porn addiction you have, or a past or present failure. Uh, it could be anything. And you try just to ignore it and, and, and move on with your life, because your life's pretty okay even with it. But will you, will you just follow the example of Jesus and drink from the cup you've been given? God didn't give you the cup. Uh, maybe you gave yourself the cup. Maybe your mother gave you your cup. I don't know how you got the cup. Who cares how you got the cup? The important thing is you got the cup. And since you have the cup, will you drink of that cup and suffer whatever you need to suffer, knowing that God will be at work in, in that to resurrect something new and beautiful in your life? Or maybe it's something in the past. Sometimes things that are done to us are just too ugly to register on our consciousness. And so we, we plow forward in life by just plugging our ears to it or ignoring it. We don't want to think about it, don't want to deal with it. But we don't realize that like all pain avoidance strategies, you're paying a price for it. Much greater than the price you'll pay by suffering by going through it. You know, it was, I was 33 before I got my first clear picture of something terrible that was done to me. I knew that some stuff happened, but I never could envision it really until 33 in the middle of prayer, boom, there was a scene. And I had to ask my sister, my older sister, did this really happen? And she said, yeah, I'm sorry, Greg, it did. And then, following that came a series for the next 10 years. And still, once in a while, I'll get something like that. And it was painful, really painful. See, I think my brain, I just was like suppressing it because I'm doing life by just, who cares about that? I'm strong, I'm tough, I go on, I move on. I don't have to deal with that stuff. And so I just sort of blocked that out of my mind. But here, apparently, was, I was ready to deal with it. And so it comes up and sad. And so you cry over it and invite Jesus into it, and it brings the healing. And, and he resurrects a new part of you. You know, I didn't realize how much holding on to an old wound, you don't think you're paying for it, but you are. Anything that's not healed, you pay for. It, it to some degree will deaden your capacity to love or to feel joy or to feel sadness or just to feel. It, it, to some degree, it will make you less human. 
And Jesus came to give us fullness of life, absolute fullness of life. He wants you to be everything you as a human being can be. And so he wants every part of you to be healed. And so if you've got a little kid in the brain there that hasn't heard the good news yet, well, you need to bring them the good news. And that means you've got to face what was done to you as a little kid and, and, and cry over that and, 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 and deal with it. But know that God will be involved in it. He works everything, even the terrible, terrible, nasty, wounded stuff, the abusive stuff, the, the tormenting stuff. He uses it all as fertilizers to grow beautiful fruit in our lives. So will you? Amen. Amen. He's the God of the resurrection. So if you're here this morning and you don't know Jesus, I want to encourage you to surrender your life to him. And if you do that, come up here and just tell these folks and start your walk with God. It's not a magical prayer you pray. It's a commitment you make. And I do in marriage to march a certain way, to live a certain way. And come up here and talk to these folks. Uh, for the rest of us, I just want to do this. Would you right now just close your eyes for one minute? And when I talked about the nasty, ugly smelly, sin-stained stuff, the Good Friday stuff, what came to your mind? What's one thing that came to your mind? Because we've all got some of this. And I want to ask you to just envision that. Represent it somehow in your imagination. Just envision it for a moment. And it may be very hard to do, very scary to do, very unpleasant to do, but I'm asking you to do it. Follow the example of Jesus and look at this Good Friday, pre-Easter part of your life. And Holy Spirit, give us the courage to be honest here and to face the ugliness. What dark aspect of your life do you have? It could be your marriage. It could be a secret. It could be a lifestyle issue. Anger, resentment. Represent it. What does it look like? See it as vividly as possible. Don't make excuses for it. Don't clean it up. Don't minimize it. No. Just look at it. It's as bad as it is. The good news is that Jesus loves you with this. This is not a big problem for him unless you make it so by keeping it. And so now would you envision that thing and and just behind it, there's Jesus. And Jesus has a smile because he loves it when we give him our crap. (laughs) He loves it because that's his fertilizer. And can you see yourself giving him this issue? This, you're giving it to him, and, and you're saying, will you come into this mess? I don't. Maybe you don't know how, what you're going to do. You don't know how you're going to get rid of this. You don't even know if you want to get rid of this, but invite him into it. Just say, will you do your resurrection work here? And commit to then following his lead as you work through this issue. And it may be uh, involve suffering. Maybe involve a lot of pain. Maybe it's scary. I don't, it could be anything. But here, the good news of the resurrection is that there is an Easter just around the corner. God promises us, if you'll, if you'll work through this, however terrible it is, it may not be immediate, it could last a while, but there is a beautiful Easter that will more than be worth it. To not do this is to let this thing fester and continue to suck life out of you. Give it to Jesus. Commit to holding his hand as you work through this thing, knowing that an Easter is on the other side of Good Friday. As I close in prayer, I want to ask the prayer teams to come up here. And if you have any need that could use prayer, I encourage you to come forward. Or if you uh, surrender your life to Christ, I encourage you to come forward and talk to these folks. But would you stand as I just send us out with this? Can we be, as we leave here, Holy Spirit, help us to be a courageous people who look at reality. Don't run from reality. Don't care about the pain of reality. We just face it. We're honest with it. We invite the Father into every aspect of our life, even the dark, darkest crevices of our soul, knowing that he is at work 
for the good and that Easter is just around the corner. God bless you guys. Go out. Live in reality. Be courageous. Love you.